I wanted to offer support to parents who do want to improve their sleep. And maybe their baby isn't sleeping optimally and maybe they aren't sleeping optimally, but they want to do it responsibly and they want to do it without sleep training and without sacrificing their intuition. Welcome to the Happy Home Birth Podcast, your source for positive natural childbirth stories and your community of support, education, and encouragement in all things home birth and motherhood. Sleeping with your baby. We've probably all done it once or twice, but is it actually safe? Hey there, happy home birthers, and welcome to this week's episode of the Happy Home Birth Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Fusco, and this week we are speaking with Taylor Kulik. Taylor is an occupational therapist and holistic sleep and parenting educator who developed a passion for helping new mothers overcome their sleep-related fears and helping them get back to trusting in their intuition. She provides radical re-education about how babies and children should sleep and offers holistic and responsive sleep support to parents who do not want to sleep train. Now, I know the topic of sleep can feel extremely sensitive to many, so know that this information is provided with love and respect, and it's given as an option for those who want or need it. Okay, let's jump into this incredible interview. Please remember that the opinions of my guest may not necessarily reflect my own and vice versa, and this show is not medical advice, it's an educational tool. So continue to take empowered responsibility for your health and your family. Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the Happy Home Birth Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am honored to have you. I Just before we started recording, I said I am so happy with the work that you are doing. It's amazing to be able to get this information out to mothers, and you're doing a great job. So before we jump into all of this incredible sleep news that you have, would you mind taking a moment just to introduce yourself and your family to the listeners? Yes. Yeah, so my name is Taylor Kulik. I am a holistic sleep and parenting educator. Um, specifically, what my passion is, is helping re-educate parents and families about what infant and child sleep should actually look like. And you might not be surprised to learn that that is a wide variety. It can look like so many different things. Um, and so really, I just love to dispel those myths that a lot of parents are exposed to when they're expecting or when they're new parents um, about how their baby should be sleeping. And I support families to optimize the sleep for the entire family while still being responsive to their baby's needs. Mm, I love that. That's incredible. So I want us to get there. And I'm curious, before we start discussing all of this sleep information, would you mind walking us through kind of how this became your passion? Was it related to your own children? And if so, could we kind of talk about their births and how you've raised them and, and how this all came about? Yeah. So basically my life story condensed yes, into like, I, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. So I, um, excuse me, I, this came about, um, because of my own experiences with my children. And so my first child, I had her, she's six now. And, um, she, you know, at that time I didn't really know much about sleep other than the, the normal sleep blog posts and like what people were telling me. Um, so I had this expectation that by a certain age, like a young age, she should probably be sleeping through the night and sleeping independently and not needing night feeds. And what actually ended up happening was that none of that happened. And I was very confused and I didn't understand why. And I remember specifically um, spending, even when she was a new a newborn, spending like entire days, it felt like, when my husband was at work in her dark nursery, trying desperately to put her down drowsy but awake. Um, and that wasn't working. And I was driving myself crazy because I would like, she would be latched, nursing, falling asleep. And I would feel like I needed to wake her up so that I could put her down in the crib awake. And then she would be upset and I would rock her and nurse her and she would fall asleep again. And we would just repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, and it was just so frustrating. And it put me, um, I really do feel like it was one of the main contributing factors to me having intense postpartum anxiety. I did not want to leave the house. I did not want to get any questions about how she was sleeping. I did not want to talk to anybody. I was just absolutely miserable. And so what happened to make a long story short, was by the time she was about five or six months old, 
um, we, she would not sleep in her crib. We had her crib like at the edge of our bed and she would not be transferred to the crib mm-hmm. after I nursed her. And so my husband said one day, you know, just leave her in bed with us because that was the only way she would sleep. I would nurse her side lying in bed and she would sleep and she, everything was peaceful and we were happy and getting rest. But then I would wake her up and move her to the crib and she would wake up. And so my husband said, please keep her in bed with us. Um, and so, oh, I didn't mention this, but my background is, and I'm an occupational therapist. And so I'm a healthcare professional. I worked in the hospitals. I learned, you know, that bed sharing is very, very unsafe. So I told him, no, we absolutely can't do that. That's dangerous. You know, all of the the propaganda, the anti-bed sharing propaganda that had been repeated to me, I was repeating back to him. And finally, I realized we really don't have another option because she won't sleep without me. And what I've learned since is that she has a a very sensitive, persistent, um, not very adaptable temperament. So I've learned a lot about my baby's temperament, and they're both what we would call highly sensitive children. Um, you know, there's a wide range of temperament temperaments, but they're not, my, both of my babies have not been easygoing, especially when it comes to sleep. And so what I realized now is that my expectations were just really unreasonable for her. But of course I didn't know that at the time. And so we did start bed sharing and I started looking into safe bed sharing. I started Googling to see our other parents bed sharing because nobody was talking about it. And I had been made to believe that this was this awful, you know, thing to do as a parent. I felt like a failure. I felt ashamed. And that's when I found the work of a lot of bed sharing researchers and educators like Professor James McKenna and Helen Ball and all these wonderful people who have contributed, contributed so much to this space. And they study safe bed sharing and and educate parents on how to be safe when they're sleeping with their babies. Um, and so that was when I kind of had this light bulb moment and I thought, I know there are other people around me, like people in my church community and my friends who are bed sharing and we're just not talking about it. And so from then on, I would go have conversations with people. And when they would ask me how my baby's sleeping, I would be honest with them. And I would say, how she's sleeping? And then I would say, we bed share. And I'm not kidding that probably 75% of the time, if that person was a mom with a baby, she would say back to me, oh, we bed share too. Or, oh, we bed share part-time. Or I bring my baby into bed with me in the early morning to nurse. So all I was realizing that all of these families are pretty much bed sharing, even if they don't call it that, and even if it's not full-time. And it was almost like me just admitting that was like an invitation for them to also admit it because we're also filled with shame around it. So that's really how I got into doing what I do. My my goal was to re-educate parents on what biological infant sleep actually looks like. And then I also wanted to help parents because I didn't want to sleep train. I always skip around. Like I, I miss certain parts, but I did try to sleep train my, my child. I did. I left her to cry for probably five minutes at one point and she was just escalating and escalating and red in the face. And I realized my child is going to be the child that they talk about who vomits if I keep this going. And I can't do that. I didn't feel right about that. And so I stopped. Um, but I did try a lot of different sleep training strategies and the rules and, you know, all of these things that they say will get your baby sleeping perfectly independently through the night. Um, and so I wanted to offer support to parents who do want to improve their sleep. And maybe their baby isn't sleeping optimally, and maybe they aren't sleeping optimally, but they want to do it responsibly, and they want to do it without sleep training and without sacrificing their intuition. Mm -hmm. And so that is really what got me started on this path. Um, And okay, so my birth stories, really quickly, because my my second child slept even worse than my first child. Um, And... It turns out he had a lot of, like, he had oral ties. He had breathing issues. He's still, he's three and he still has, like, airway issues that we're trying to address. So he was just very uncomfortable. He would wake every 15 to 30, 40 minutes. um, And he couldn't sleep flat next to me in the bed. Like, crib sleeping was never an option for him. I could not even get him to sleep flat next to me in the bed. Like, we had, he had to be upright, being bounced and rocked for most of the night for the first six months of his life. So, at this point, I knew a lot more about sleep, and I, I'm so grateful that I did because I never even thought to sleep train him. It was still so hard, but I at least, least knew that it wasn't a reflection of like a failure of mine. Um, I knew that I just needed to support him through this, and I needed to get people to support me through it as I was supporting him. Um, so my birth stories. Um, my first child was a hospital birth, and but honestly, I 
I have two really great birth stories. I'm very, very genuinely thankful. I went with a traditional like OB practice. They have like rotating OBs. So I got to know each of them like for prenatal appointments, but I didn't know who was going to be at my birth. Um, and I had a doula. I knew that I wanted to have a natural birth, an unmedicated birth if possible. I knew I wanted to have someone advocating for me for my first birth. And so I did get a doula and it was like, a textbook birth. Like my water broke at, I think it was about 10 o'clock as I was going to bed. And, um, I started, my contraction started almost instantly. I labored at home until probably two or 3 AM went to the hospital. I was like six or seven centimeters dilated. And she was born, um, by like 8 AM, I think. So it was like a 10 hour first labor unmedicated, um, the only like negative experience, and this wasn't like the fault of, it was just the way it was. I didn't know as much about birth. It was just, I was exhausted. For some reason I was exhausted. I mean, I didn't sleep all night, but um, I was really exhausted. And I remember I was put like purple pushing on my back. That was probably the worst part of my birth experience is that like my, I remember my uh, blood vessels in my eyes um, like burst. I was purple pushing on my back and that was miserable. Um, the pushing was miserable, but, and I did tear. But other than that, I mean, my I had a birth plan. My w- wishes were respected. Um, I remember because I was in the hospital. I remember there was several like nursing students, and they kept asking me permission for these nursing students to come in because they hadn't seen an unmedicated birth yet. And I was just really, really surprised by that. I was like, yeah, sure. I would love for them. I would love to be their first unmedicated birth that they witness. Um, so that was my first child. But then after that, just just some little things from like the OBs. I didn't like some of the ways that they answered my questions. I remember one OB at my six-week checkup kind of mocked me when I told him I didn't want to go on hormonal birth control. Um, and he told me that I'd be pregnant again in a year. And he like laughed at me. And that was kind of, I think, the turning point where I was like, I'm not doing this again. I'm not having this, this OB practice. I'm not, I'm not letting a man be in the room with me, like besides my husband, I'm not letting a man try to tell me that he knows more about my body than I do. Um, and so with my second, I knew I wanted to have a home birth and I knew that before I was pregnant with him. And so I had an amazing midwife who checked all the boxes and who was like, as involved or not involved as the mother wanted her to be. It was, she was amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, since my first birth was so quick, I really expected my second to be like super fast. Like I thought I'm going to be one of those moms who like is starts, has contractions. And then like within two hours, the baby's born that did not happen. So my second birth was like, like a big mental exercise because I was in labor for, I think it ended up being over 30 hours and um, I was really doubting myself. So I woke up one morning, I was still nursing my daughter. I always nursed her in the morning and I started having what felt like pretty intense contractions. Um, And I kind of got through the day. I thought they would pick up and like get a little stronger and they did, but then they would like back off. So it was like back and forth. They would be like five minutes apart and then they would be 10, 15 minutes apart, five minutes apart, 10, 15 minutes apart, really, really strong. And they were pretty strong the whole time, but that also varied a little bit. So it was just really playing with my head because I was like, is this real labor? Is this false labor? Is this whatever the terminology is like, is this real labor or not? I went to my chiropractor the next morning. I was, I had still not really progressed much. And after that, my midwife suggested I do the mile circuit. Um, so I did the mile circuit like around the around the yard, up the stairs, um, curb walking, all of that. And I went and laid, uh, laid down upstairs. And at that point, my contractions were just as intense. This whole time, they've been just as intense. Like f- since the previous day, they have been very intense. And I remember being very confused because my contractions felt as intense as they were in my active stage of labor with my first child. So I was like, what is going on? Why have I been, why have I been in labor for 24 hours? Um, and I just had this feeling. I was like, it was probably one o'clock or 12 o'clock or something. Um, at this point I'd been in out in labor for probably 30 hours. And I ended up calling my midwife and saying, can you just come? I just want to be checked. I just want to see if I'm dilated because I'm messing with my, like my head is, I'm getting in my head. I feel like I'm going to have to go to the hospital. I just want to see if I'm even dilated because my contractions are really intense, but they're still like five minutes apart, eight minutes apart. Um, So she came 
within like the hour she was there, she checked me. I was like seven centimeters dilated. And at that point, things just got moving. I feel like I really needed that um, to get out of the mental mess that I had gotten myself into. It was almost like, like encouragement for me and relief. Like, okay, I am progressing. Something is happening. And within an hour, my baby was born. And so I, at that point, um, when, well, actually when the midwife was on the way, I told my husband, I think it's going to, I think it's going to happen soon, but she's coming to check. Can you get the birth pool set up? So by the time she got there, I was in the pool. I started feeling like the transition point started pushing. It was, it was within 30 minutes, I think maybe 45 minutes of being in the birth pool that he was born. And my, my midwife's assistant actually got there, I think five minutes before he was born. So it all happened very quickly after, like, after I got my, um, after I got checked, because I think it was, it just gave me the, like the confidence boost that I needed. But something that I think was so interesting was I was, I got less sleep with my second, like my first, I didn't sleep through the, I didn't sleep that night, but I was so exhausted with my second. I didn't sleep the first night. Um, I was even more exhausted because I'd been in labor for, for 30 hours and I hadn't slept that whole time, but I was in the pool. I was in like an upright position. I was changing positions, but I was, I think I ended up pushing him out, like kneeling, like one leg up, one leg down. Um, and I didn't feel as tired. Like I wasn't falling over exhausted. Like I was with my first, it just felt very empowering. Um, and it was really hard. <laughs> I remember telling my husband to pray for me cause I was dying. I think we all have like a point like that. Right. Um, but it was just such a, an empowering experience and it was really, really tough, but, um, it was amazing being able to just get into my own bed with my, with my baby and with my toddler. And she was there the whole time she was offering me water. It was just the coolest thing. So, oh, wow. That was yeah. longer than just a brief summary. Sorry. No, it was perfect. It was beautiful. I'm, I love to know. It's kind of like, you know, people ask like icebreaker questions. <laughs> I feel like my icebreaker question is just, Hey, what's, what was your birth yeah. like? <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing. And wow, I I just thinking about that place that you must have been in with your second birth where your first birth went very quickly. And the thought is, okay, this is going to be, this is going to go by quick. It's honestly very similar to what happened with me in terms of I had my first baby. I went into labor at like 39 weeks and four days. And so then I assumed oh, well, you know, I'll have my second baby when I was pregnant with her. I thought, oh, well, it'll be probably before 39 and four when I go yeah. into labor. And so then when it was 40 and three, those last days were just like eternities. So when you go into labor thinking like, this is probably going to be a pretty quick event. And then it's 30 hours later. That is such a mind game. You're right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And my, I called my, my best friend who lived down the street. Um, some of y'all may know her. She on Instagram, she's instinctual birthing. Her name's Alicia. And she was like my doula. And I was like, Alicia, I can't do this. I'm going to have to go to the hospital. And she was like, no, you are psyching yourself out. Stop it. You are doing this to yourself. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it's a huge mind game. And I just thought after my first birth, oh, I'm, I'm like made to birth. I mean, obviously we're all made to birth, but you know, I'm like, oh, this was just, I mean, it wasn't easy. It was very tough, but like, it was a textbook, like no issues, super short. I mean, super short compared to what a lot of women's first births are. Um, but something that's really interesting is both of my kids, I, I had them at 39 weeks and four days, both of them. So you're very now my next birth, I'm like, don't get, don't be obsessed about the 39 weeks, four days things that may <laughs> not happen. As soon as you think you know the pattern, that's when the pattern changes. <laughs> right. Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. So let's shift back towards the sleep gears. Everything that you said was just incredible. Your introduction, how you got involved in this, your experience with your first daughter and then your second son. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned, and wow, I I have had this same thought, that concept of postpartum mood disorders and lack of sleep being connected. I don't feel like in all of the stories that I've heard, and I've I've spoken with a number of mothers who have had postpartum psychosis, I don't think that I've ever heard a story of postpartum psychosis that was not very heavily related to lack of sleep 
an inability to get rest. And so that's, you know, that's, that's the, the peak of, of stress with postpartum. But if we, if we scoot down, even postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, sleep is so critical. We know this. So how, how does it not make sense that if we can do things to support our sleep, we're also doing things to support our entire body, including our hormonal balancing. Do you have any additional thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, so I would say sleep is a huge, a huge factor in mental health, but we're getting it really wrong, like in how it's being addressed and talked about, because we need to back up and figure out why are we having such a hard time sleeping? Why are our babies having a hard time sleeping? And there's so much to this and there, and there's much more to mental health as well. But of course, sleep is an important part, but I would say, you know, there's, First of all, so many other things impact maternal mental health, like birth trauma and pain, pelvic pain, pelvic health dysfunction that is largely being dismissed by OBs. Like a lot of OBs don't even know, they don't even care to refer um, their the moms that they're working with to pelvic floor therapy. Um, and so there's that aspect of it. There's hormonal imbalances. There's lack of nutrition. Like moms are not eating well. We are not living in community anymore. Like most moms for all of history have been having people um, really nurture them and, and cook for them and clean for them during the postpartum period. So moms are up doing it all and they're not eating like they should be eating, especially while they're recovering from birth and breastfeeding. Um, and then on top of it, we're telling moms to separate from their babies. And separation from our babies is not what we are designed to do. We are designed to nurture our babies. We are designed to be near them. We are designed to breastfeed them. And so when that is impacted, that is also going to affect our mental health. And so I feel like, I don't know if I'm actually, am I answering your question? You are going for it. You're doing a great job. Just had a brief (laughs) thought of like, no, she didn't ask. She asked me an entirely different question. Um, When... If we address mental health holistically, we would get so much farther than just saying, moms, you need to sleep train your baby. Moms, you need to keep your baby on a feeding schedule. You need to have your husband give them a bottle at night. Now, then the tricky part is moms say, well, how does that make me get sleep if I'm responding to my baby all night? Well, here's the issue. We are not meant to sleep separate from our babies. And when we are s- sleeping separately from our babies, but we still want to be responsive to them, we still want to feed them on demand, that doesn't work well. It just doesn't because our babies are meant to be near us. That helps us respond to them quicker so they're not having to cry out because if they're very close to us and in, sense, in sensory proximity, we can pick up on their early feeding cues. We can pick up on their early cues of discomfort, need, whatever needs they have without them getting to an outright cry. If they're close, if they're bed sharing with us, we don't have to get up at all to nurse them. We can often sleep through nursing. I mean, it just makes sense. And I know not everybody can bed share, but we still have to acknowledge that there's this huge issue like right in the middle of responsiveness and and care for an infant. And of, of course, it's going to impact maternal mental health. This is another part of it. Even if, okay, so we're telling moms don't fall asleep with your baby on the bed. It's so dangerous. But we're also, a lot of people are also telling moms, as they should be. Well, you need to responsibly feed your baby. You need to respond to them at night, but don't fall asleep. So what are moms doing? They're scrolling their phone on the chair in the middle of the night to keep them awake. And what does that do? Well, the blue light from the phone lowers our melatonin production. It impacts our sleep. A lot of times we're scrolling social media, which is dysregulating to our nervous system. So then we're like, we're seeing like people killing each other and people fighting in the comment section and just these wild things on social media that makes us totally dysregulated. And then we put our baby down and we expect to go lay in bed and fall asleep within five minutes. And right. we're surprised. <laughs> yeah. Like we're surprised when moms aren't falling asleep after they nurse their babies or feed their babies. No, like it actually makes sense because the advice that most moms are getting, it ju- none of it works together. Mm-hmm. And it just causes issues. And so there are ways to continue to respond to your baby and support your baby's needs while also supporting your own needs. It's just not always convenient. Um, sometimes it's hard to hear. And sometimes it involves really relearning everything that you've been told about sleeping with your baby. 
That is so true. Another thing that I think, you know, you discussed, like we're not having the community support that we used to have. The way that we are living is so different from times in the past. If we were to look at times in the past, and truly just if we're to look outside of the United States, we're going to see many places across the world where bed sharing is the norm, the only way that that babies are sleeping. And so one of the things that I think is interesting about that is, you know, if we're, if we're looking at times past, babies are sleeping in the same room, at least with mom and dad. And then during the day, though, maybe we don't have the same amount of responsibilities that we in our current society are giving mothers right now, where it's, okay, you are taking care of the baby and you're working your job and you're doing this and you have to make sure that the laundry is kept up. Also, make sure that there's a perfect meal on the table. All of the different things all combined together, yes, that's crazy overwhelming. If we're thinking of it that way, that's crazy overwhelming. So, Maybe, unfortunately, it's a bigger picture of, hey, let's reevaluate what's important to us in this yeah. in this time. Is that what you've seen? Oh, yeah. And this is a really hard message, I think, for a lot of women to hear because it's there's no easy solution when we live in the society we do. We can't we can't fix the culture overnight. Um, we can't change maternity leave policies overnight. We can't like there's so many things we just it's, this has been a very gradual progression of devaluing the caregiver role, devaluing moms, devaluing families, really. And um, so it, there's not an easy solution because in order to ever make progress, we have to acknowledge that the problem exists in the first place. But then can I give you like an easy step-by-step solution to change all of that right now? No, I can't. Really. But yeah, right. that's abs- that's absolutely what, what I see. Um, and the, the truth is, is that culture really does tell us as moms that we can have it all. We can have the career. We can have the baby. We can have a good relationship with our baby. We can have the breastfeeding relationship. We can do it all. And, and we that's a lie. We can't do it all. We might be able to do it all at different points in our life, but we can't do it all. We can't have a baby and then also have good mental health, have a great breastfeeding relationship with our baby, um, and go right back to work and, and make and have four like, meals on the table. <laughs> like, like yeah. my floor is going to be sticky for a while. I, right. I have a three month right. old. Like that is realizing, like, oh, it's not going to be perfect. Right. And it's not meant to be. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, moms really do have to prioritize. What can I outsource? Is there any room in the budget to get paid support with? Do I have a local community that I can, you know, ask for support? Do I have family and friends that will help me? Um, do I need to go back to work? Can I, can we get by without me working for a while? You know, there's so many things. Do I need to clean the floor every night? Can my partner, what can he start helping with a little bit more? Like, can he start packing lunches for me if I need to go to work? Can he clean the floor at night? Whatever. Um, Meal prepping. There's so many different factors, but it's not all easy. And I think... The reason that it, it's such a it's such a difficult message to hear is because we have really been given the opposite message that we can do it all and that it's it's empowering for women to be able to do it all, to have a career and be a mom. But the truth is, is that it's exhausting and it's defeating because it just doesn't work that way. We have to have support. Absolutely. Yes. And then when we add on the potential of being told you're dangerous if you don't respond to your baby by sleeping with them or sleeping close to them these messages yeah. that we're getting, we have all of this added stress. And that's yeah. that's really where I want to, to go right now would be when it comes to how babies should be sleeping in quotation marks, what are the misconceptions that mothers are hearing? Yeah, there's so many of them. Um, the, I mean, the first I would say is that, you know, independent sleep is kind of presented as this gold standard that if babies are not sleeping by themselves, putting themselves to sleep and able to get back to sleep on their own when they wake up, then you need to sleep train or you need to teach them how to do this. And that's just not true. I mean, it's really normal for babies to need support to get to sleep. It's not convenient for us, but it is normal. And all babies have different temperaments and different needs. So some babies might be really, they might just be really good sleepers and they might just be able to kind of settle themselves and they don't get too upset. They don't get too dysregulated. So they don't need a lot of support, but most babies do. And this isn't really something that you can, you can teach by leaving them alone, which is what we're told. This is something that comes with time and development and it takes years. It takes years to develop that um, ability because really the skill that we're thinking of here is, is 
self-regulation. It's not sleeping. Babies know how to sleep, but it's not that we're teaching them to sleep. We're teaching them to self-regulate. And the reality is that babies and young children are wired to co-regulate with a calm, responsive caregiver. And they're not able to self-regulate until they're older. Um, and there's a lot of you know different opinions about when that is exactly. Some research theorize that we're really wired to co-regulate until we're like 25. Um, others will say, you know, five, five to seven, or you know, you might start to see like signs of self-regulation at age three or four, but that doesn't mean that they can 100% self-regulate all the time. Right. And you know, that's so connected to our nervous system. Our mm -hmm. nervous system, we are born with the ability to go into fight or flight. We are born with the ability to go into overwhelm or dorsal. We are not born with an ability to maintain stability outside of someone else regulating us. And so I think right. that when, when people recognize that, that it's, it's not that this baby's not doing something right. It's that, hey, their nervous system literally does not have that function yet. Yeah. They, they don't have that yet. Maybe we can give a little bit yeah. more grace to that yeah. situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's absolutely true. It, it, we need to really reframe the way we look at how babies are sleeping and how they're behaving. Um, and I think it's just so interesting how our culture has really I don't know, like we haven't, they have, we have no understanding of development at this point. Like we're told that we must teach our babies how to self-soothe, which they really mean self-regulate, um, by leaving them alone. And in what other, with what other developmental milestone or skill do we treat babies like that? Do we, do we leave them on the floor when they're newborns and say, you need to just learn to walk on your own and walk away from them? Do we put them on the potty when they're newborns and walk away from them? I know people do elimination communication. That's totally different because, and because I've gotten that before. You're, you just think about what, however you're teaching them skills, you're first, you're present, first of all, you're modeling for them, you're doing for them what they cannot yet do. And then you're gradually taking away that support as they're able to do more and more, but you're modeling how to do it and you're encouraging and supporting them. They develop these skills in the context of a relationship with their caregivers. Mm -hmm. And sleep training is one of the only areas that we tell parents to teach baby something by leaving them alone to deal with it on their own. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's a huge issue. It's a huge myth and misconception of how babies develop. Um, and the other thing that is really common is, um, parents believe that, and they're told that their babies shouldn't be nursing at night. Like they should be, again, it goes back to consolidated sleep, but it's this idea of sleeping through the night. It's this idea of they don't need night feeds at a certain time. There's no like set age that people usually say, but I mean, even pediatricians will have these arbitrary rules and numbers. Oh, baby has doubled their birth weight. That must mean they can sleep through the night without a feed. Oh, baby's six months old now. They can definitely, they should definitely be able to sleep through the night without a feed. And none of that is rooted in any sort of science or reality. Um, babies are all different. They often do need nighttime nutrition for the first year of life and oftentimes even longer. And so that's another really big myth. Mm, yeah, those are really great. Uh, there, the other thing that I hear a lot when it comes to sleeping with our babies is the fact, and, and you already alluded to it at one, one point, the, the fact that it's dangerous, right? Like you've been told mm -hmm. this is super duper dangerous. And so how would we debunk that if that is a myth as well? Yeah. So this is a complicated one because sleeping with your baby can be dangerous if you are in, if your baby is in unsafe circumstances. And why are parents sleeping with their babies in unsafe circumstances? Because they're not being given safe bed sharing information and parents are terrified to fall asleep with their babies in bed, but they inevitably do. Moms inevitably are breastfeeding their baby and they're sleepy and they fall asleep in the rocking chair, on the couch, sometimes standing up rocking their baby. I fell asleep with my first child standing up rocking her. Um, it was terrifying. And that was because I was so scared to bed share with her. So what does the research actually say? Um, the totality of the bed sharing research when we take into account safe bed sharing circumstances versus unsafe bed sharing circumstances shows that there is not a statistically significant difference in safety in terms of co uh, bed sharing versus crib sleeping, especially for four months and up. 
you will find there's, I mean, there's many studies and some studies show that there's no statistically significant increased risk even for newborns, like under three, four months. And some studies will find that there is a slight increased risk for safely bed sharing with newborns. But the, so that's kind of up for debate. If there is a little bit more risk, it's probably a pretty small increased risk for newborns. But the studies show that over after four months, there's really no increased risk at all for safe bed sharing versus safe crib sleeping. And there was one research study that actually showed um, a uh, what it was a benefit, like a, a a benefit for ages four months and up for safe bed sharing. So the problem is that like the AAP, for example, when they say don't ever bed share, they cite this science that is um, that bed sharing is so unsafe and it increases risk and deaths by this amount or whatever, is that they're cherry picking the data. If you look at the the research studies that they're using, they often in the research studies have not drawn the same conclusions that the American Academy of Pediatrics has drawn and cited this research study. Um, they are oftentimes they're not defining bed sharing appropriately. So a lot of times in these in these studies, they're defining bed sharing to include all forms of co-sleeping, including situations that are always unsafe and very risky, like sleeping on the couch with your baby, sleeping on the chair with your baby, sleeping um, under the influence of smoking, drugs, alcohol, things like that. Those are always unsafe situations, but those are lumped all together into bed sharing deaths. Mm. And so that's really the problem with, that's one of the main problems with this research is that they're, the medical industry is cherry picking the data and they're using it to tell parents never to bed share. And then parents, because of this, doctors aren't giving parents safe bed sharing guidelines. Parents are terrified to bed share because of the propaganda. I mean, hello, do you remember can't be the only one that remembers this. There used to be like billboards. There was like a campaign where it was like a wolf dressed up at like the wolf from Little Red Riding Hood or something. And it had a, like a knife. Oh. And it was, it was, it was equating bed sharing. I can't, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I'm, I might be making this up or mixing it up with another campaign, but I'm almost positive that it was equating sleeping with your baby on the bed to like murdering your grandma or something. It was mm -hmm. something weird like that. It was literally like that. So, I mean, obviously parents are terrified to bed share. There's stigma around it. They feel ashamed. But the problem is they don't even know, like 60 to 75% of breastfeeding dyads do bed share at some point, even if it's for that hour in the night. And they're doing it unsafely because they mm. haven't set up their, their bed sharing setup to be safe. Um, they're falling asleep on the couch. They're falling asleep with baby around tons of blankets whatever that looks like. And so it's really like chaotic, unplanned bed sharing is really dangerous. Prepared bed sharing is usually not dangerous. Now, there are certain criteria that we've we've been given from people that research this, uh, these criteria of how you can ensure that you're sleeping with your baby in the safest way possible. And so there are some criteria, some things you want to look at. Like it is safest to bed share if your baby is full term. It is safest to bed share in the context of a breastfeeding relationship. Um, it is safest to bed share on, on a firm surface, no blankets around. So we have these guidelines, these criteria. That doesn't mean that, you know, if you don't bed share or breastfeed that you absolutely can't bed share. You just have to know it does increase risk of bed sharing. Um, but again, parents are not being given access to this information. And on the flip side of this, this is a whole nother conversation. There's actually tons of benefits to bed sharing. Mm -hmm. So it's not just looking at risk of bed sharing versus risk of, of crib sleeping. Let's also look at benefit of bed sharing because babies are meant to sleep in sensory proximity to their mother. They are meant to sleep near their mother and it protects them. Um, moms and babies, when they sleep near each other, have small arousals throughout the night. And again, this is back to like, babies aren't meant to not sleep, to not wake at night. They're not meant to sleep through the night. These arousals help baby um, be protected from SIDS. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really, the research with bed sharing um, dyads is really, really fascinating if you want to dive into it. Like moms impact baby's breathing rate, their heart rate, their temperature. Moms keep babies safe if they're mm -hmm. safely bed sharing. And there Isn't are so many benefits to it. 
Yeah, and I'd love to talk. Well, we just we just did, but isn't it funny the things that you're saying? Like we're talking about how moms and babies, moms regulate babies' temperature, they regulate their respiration, heart rate, all of these things, all of the things that we learn about with the golden hour, right? This Mm -hmm. special magical hour after birth where it's so important for us to regulate with our baby. That is true, and that's wonderful. Are we really thinking that it's like, okay, end of the hour, and now you're two separate beings and do your own thing, each of you? No, no, that's not what this dyad is. And the fact that we emphasize that so much in that first hour, yet don't continue to emphasize it is really fascinating. Yes. And I mean, really, for a lot of moms, bed sharing or at least sensory proximity co-sleeping on a separate surface is critical for breastfeeding. A lot of moms and and some moms, moms can definitely nurse and have a successful breastfeeding relationship and meet their breastfeeding goals without bed sharing with baby, but not all moms can. If you have a smaller uh, storage capacity, for example, your baby's going to need to nurse more often. You can't limit night feeds. Otherwise that is going to mess with your supply. It's going to mess with your breastfeeding relationship. Moms aren't told this, um, keeping your baby close to you specifically bed sharing if you can, because that, that you don't have to get up most of the time. You don't have to get up and nurse them. You just literally nurse them in your sleep. And it's so beautiful. And it enables you to have this really great breastfeeding relationship where you're supply, you're, they're keeping your supply up in the night and you're not ex- having to be exhausted because you're not having to get up every two hours or however long, however often to nurse your baby, scroll through your phone and go back to bed. Like that's exhausting. And so breast bed sharing enables us to not to do that. There is lots of literature about this. The literature shows that, um, moms who co-sleep uh breastfeed usually breastfeed longer moms that have a responsive feeding philosophy meaning they want to feed their baby on demand breastfeed longer moms that intentionally limit nighttime feeds usually have an earlier um or a decreased duration of breastfeeding. So, I mean, this is borne out in the literature and it's so important for moms to know this. It it doesn't mean that it's impossible for you to have a successful breastfeeding relationship if you don't bed share, but I think it is important for moms to know that sometimes it's going to be really difficult if you don't. And specifically, like if you have a smaller storage capacity um, or if you just have a baby who wants to nurse every hour, like that is really normal. But yeah, it's not super sustainable when your baby's in a crib on the other side of the house, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's important for moms to know this if they want to breastfeed, if that's important to them. Absolutely. That was my first my first child when she was a not just a newborn, just our entire nursing relationship. She wanted to nurse every single hour and I remember thinking, I there is no way. There is no way that I could do this if she were not right beside me and we didn't have it down mm-hmm. to such a rhythm where it's like, oh okay, flip over, <laughs> like, okay, now this yeah. side. And and we were able to nurse through the night and I slept much better than I would have otherwise. Obviously, we're still waking and moving around, but such better right. sleep than if I would have had to have gotten up. I can't, I can't fathom how much additional toll that would have taken on my body, my relationship with mm-hmm. my baby, you know, thinking, yeah. thinking that through, that would have been just so difficult. Um, so those are such great points. And and once again, it is, I totally understand that, that crib sleeping works for some people and, and okay, like, okay. I just also see, just like you said, there are so many mothers who feel ashamed of, at the thought of even doing it. And so recognizing that, hey, this is something to look into and there are safe ways to do this. How helpful of a message is that? Yeah. Well, and I think it's so important for moms to know that every mother-baby diet is so different because I think we fall into the trap of comparison so much. And, and you know, we think, okay, well, my neighbor down the street, her baby sleeps in the crib and she's breastfeeding her baby and everything's fine. So I should be able to do that. My baby should be able to do it. Mm-hmm. But no, your baby is not that baby. You're, that mom down the street might have a very large breast storage capacity. That baby might have an easy, um, an easygoing temperament. Your baby might not have an easygoing temperament. Your baby might be very persistent and sensitive and not adaptable. And you might have a low breast, a lower breast milk storage capacity. So it's just, we, we can't fall into the comparison trap because we need to just learn to 
parent the baby that we have in front of us rather than trying to change our baby um, to suit our expectations because we can't change our baby to suit our expectations. And it's just going to lead to frustration for, for everybody involved. Right. Yes. Allowing that baby to be the most wonderful flourishing version of who they are, who God created mm. them to be. Like that is, that's so special. I, I love that. Yes. So let's talk about, I, I'm sure that there are some mothers who have been listening to this and this is really intriguing to them. And they're trying to consider some of the ways that maybe they can improve their, their responsiveness uh, to their babies during sleep or, um, you know, just improving that relationship at night, what recommendations do you have for them? Yeah. I mean, I would just say it's, don't overthink it. It's not, it's not super complicated. If your baby needs you, you'll know, um, they'll call for you. They'll signal to you when they can't, they can't calm themselves. Things are just kind of getting excessive, not calming down, you know, just go to them, just go to them, keep them close. If you can, the closer they are, the easier it is for you to respond to them. But you know, another question I get a lot is like, is it okay for me to like give my baby a minute? Like, yeah, it's okay for you to give your baby a minute. Like you don't have to jump. You don't have to jump and run to them every time they cry. It's really about being attuned to your baby. And like, if your baby's just like, you know, babies will kind of go like uh, as they're transitioning um, between sleep cycles, they'll just maybe moan and groan a little bit. And they're not like crying. They're just kind of fussy, right? And it's okay to pause and see what they do. Do Does their like fussiness escalate into a cry? Or do they calm down and go back to sleep? If they calm down and go back to sleep, that's fine. They didn't need you to respond to them. They figured it out. Some babies aren't going to figure it out though. So that's important to know. Some babies just aren't, they will need support every time. And that's okay. That's more of just who that baby is and their temperament. And it's nothing that you have to teach them to do. But if their cries are escalating and they're not able to get back to sleep on their own, then you know you go to them. And this, I mean- just understanding your baby's feeding cues especially is so important um, and, and responding to them because it's it's best to respond to feeding cues before it's like a full out cry, which is just another benefit of sensory proximity, co-sleeping or bed sharing. Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. And I all I can think about too is just looking back on my my relationships with my two daughters and now my son as, as a, an infant himself. But I am so grateful for the ability to have shared my bed with them and thinking about mm-hmm. all the snuggles that we get to have that that I wouldn't have had necessarily if they were sleeping somewhere else and being able to wake yeah. up and just have that little head right there and to smell all those lovely little pheromones and um, mm-hmm. just the joy that that relationship has brought me. I'm so grateful that this is information that you're sharing with others who may be interested. Um, so thank you so much for sharing it. And one question, one kind of final question that I have is if mothers are struggling with this, maybe they're trying to figure out sleep for a newborn or for an older baby or even a toddler, what resources would you recommend to help support them through figuring this out? Do you have resources? Yes, I do. I have a lot of resources. So first of all, I have a lot of free information on my Instagram account. That's where I usually am at Taylor Kulik. Um, I have an email newsletter that I send out and answer questions every week. I also have several free downloads on my website, taylorkulik.com. Um, so those could all be helpful to you in being responsive to your ba- your child or baby, but also f- trying to optimize sleep for everyone. Um, I also have comprehensive sleep e-courses. So I have one e-course that is geared towards babies and one that is geared towards toddlers. And those are designed to replace like one-to-one consultation support. Um, They're very, very comprehensive. But if you do, like if your learning style is you really like to work with someone one-on-one and you kind of just need like an outside opinion. Um, I don't do consults, but I do have an amazing teammate um, who works under me and she is amazing and very knowledgeable. And her name is Jen and she does offer one-to-one support services. And you can book that and find that information on my website. Oh man, that is fantastic. And I do have to say, guys, you should definitely join the newsletter. A few weeks ago, you did one where you were talking about someone broke up with you because you enjoyed swinging. (laughs) Yes. I loved it so much. 
so much. So I was like thinking about that the other day because I was like on my, we have a, a saucer swing outside and I was doing a post and, and blog post on the benefits of swinging for, for nervous system regulation. And like, I love to go on my swing when I'm feeling dysregulated. It just, there's nothing like it. It just calms you down and makes you feel at peace. And I was just thinking about how I got dumped when I was a, <laughs> when I was in college because I was apparently immature for wanting to go on the swing. And I'm like, no to that. Swings, <laughs> swings are for adults too. So I had to break up with her mom. She liked the swing too much. <laughs> yeah, too much. Right? We love to get so the weird. Mayo munchies. Um, and I have my girls put their Mayo yeah. munchie in while they're swinging or on the trampoline. Oh, yeah. and it's like nervous system regulation, but also we're working on our, our airways as well. <laughs> We've yes, got some, that's great. We've got some airway work to do. Um, yeah. But don't we oh, all? Man. <laughs> don't we all? That is the truth. Literally. <laughs> Well, Taylor, this was such an incredible conversation and such a, a good explanation of what this is all about. What other options do families have? So thank you for providing those options and providing the support. It was such an honor to have you on the Happy Home Birth Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I feel very honored to be on. So thank you. As we head into this week's episode roundup, I have a few thoughts for us to consider. Number one, our communities are no longer designed in a way that is supportive to child rearing as a whole, truly. We're extremely siloed and so unbelievably busy. On top of this, mothers are inundated with the message that they can have it all and that they can do it all. They can lose the baby weight, sleep all night, work all day, and come home and take care of their home and babies with love and compassion. And this, it just isn't realistic. When we realize that we've been fed a lie, we can slowly begin to untangle ourselves from it step by step. One of the best first steps that we may be able to make is reconsidering how we view infant sleep, as Taylor shared. Number two, the lack of safety in sleeping with our babies comes with not being provided information on how to do it. There is, however, information out there to help you respond to your baby's nighttime needs while also supporting your ability to get more rest, too. Taylor is doing a phenomenal job of sharing this information. And finally, let's remember that we are our child's regulator. We get to be our child's regulator. Their safe, snuggly, trusted space If we can approach this with the perspective that this is not a curse, but a gift, we can enjoy these young years, acknowledge that there will sometimes be struggle, sometimes difficulty, and we can give ourselves and our babies grace along the way. Okay, my friends, what a great episode. That's all that I've got for you for today. I'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Are you looking to extend the home birth support, encouragement, and education? Join us in our Facebook group, Happy Home Birth Podcast Community, and check us out on Instagram at Happy Home Birth Podcast.